This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. The value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider. I received a slide presentation from Philip Saunders, who's the co-head of multi-asset growth at 91 in London. Philip, I've been going through the slides and there are a lot of them. And I suppose I should be methodical. We should be methodical when it comes to the process of going through the message you're trying to get across. But I don't think we'll have time to do all of that. But I think what you're trying to say here is where to next. We've got COVID-19. It's a reality. It's a continuing reality. We've got an oil price war, which has become very, very dramatic in terms of its effect on the price of crude oil and again this morning as we pre-record it's where to from here when it comes to asset classes just some things up in general first of all before we get on to the semantics right Lindsay yes so really in the you know in the past we've talked about basically these, these three things that basically created the sort of momentum behind the the bear market we've just witnessed and that's obviously COVID-19 the oil price war which is basically having another, sort of another round but it's it's morphed it's no longer a war because OPEC have tried to OPEC and non-OPEC have tried to basically contain supply, but you've got this sort of uh, um, this this overhang, this problem of excessive supply, a lack of storage, and uh, um, and uh, continuing weak demand, and then a liquidity crunch. Um, moving on a couple of weeks, we've still obviously got uh, the oil price war hasn't been, you know has, has we've got a truce, but it's uh, um, the underlying dynamics of the prices are still very weak. The news on COVID has uh, has actually improved uh, quite considerably, I would say. And then finally, uh, the Fed has basically addressed the liquidity problem very aggressively to the extent that they've even started to been prepared to buy high yield ETFs, uh, which is extraordinary. Um, uh, which really is in the what they'll do whatever it takes to actually stabilize uh, credit markets in the US. So we've seen quite significant developments. And of course, we've seen a whacking great rally in the S&P, um, over 30% from the lows. Uh, and, and and that, of course, basically, we, we felt that uh, whether we were in a continuing bear market uh, or whether we had reached an inflection point, we entering a new bull cycle we didn't really have to take that decision a couple of weeks ago uh, because the likelihood of dislocated prices basically that sort of unwinding uh, and a relief rally resulting from that the probability of that was just extremely high and on a medium to longer term basis capital market assumptions had adjusted significantly and growth assets have become sort of compellingly attractive um, uh, again at those kind of levels if you're a longer term investor so now it's a bit more difficult, a lot more difficult in the sense we've seen a significant rally. OK, it's not been as general. Um, and uh, now uh, we really start to have to sort of make that decision. You know, are we uh, in a um, new bull cycle uh, or is this just a relief rally in a continuing bear market? Yes, it's an interesting question because we've gone from uh, bear market to bull market in record quick time. Uh, the S&P went, according to my scribbled notes here, 
has gone from 3,400 down to just below 2,200 and from just below 2,200 up to its current level of, let's call it, 2,800. So you've gone from uh, around about 30% fall to 30% rally, so bear to bull. But the question is where it goes from here and whether there's going to be a U-shaped recovery, if there's going to be a recovery at all, or a V-shaped recovery or an L-shaped recovery, whichever letter of the alphabet you so choose. What are you leaning towards? So I think that the focus on the alphabet soup of recoveries is rather missing the point because, you know, effectively what happens in terms of general economic recoveries, I think is going to be less significant um, uh, as a a sort of factor determining what markets do. Um, And let me sort of explain what I mean by that. So I think that um, what we really have to be looking at uh, is, um, you know, the general, the, the general economy, you know, may well have a U-shaped recovery, yes? Mm-hmm. Um, but if markets have a V-shaped recovery against that background, you've correctly ascertained that uh, the, the, the general economy or general economies basically um, are having a sort of more drawn-out U-shaped type experience. Uh, but ma- as we see, markets can basically detach themselves quite significantly from, from from that kind of economic analysis. So I think we have to be pragmatic. We have to sort of look at other factors driving equity markets, in particular, and growth assets more generally. Uh, and obviously, there are things like liquidity. Obviously, liquidity is super abundant at the moment. And we've also got to look at um, industrial production. So if you look at China, you know, it's sort of, you know, Industrial production is back to about 85% of the level that pertained before the whole COVID lockdown thing um, hit. Um, So you've seen a very, you know, actually rapid um, sort of going back to work. Whether they can sustain that or not, who knows? Uh, But I think there's a pretty reasonable chance that they can. Elsewhere, obviously, the rest of the world is behind China. Um, but um, it does mean that we're sort of going through the low point in terms of industrial production. We've seen a very, very sharp plunge because obviously factories have just been stopped. Uh, And now I think as we get into uh, the second half of April and into May, you're likely to see definitely a V-shaped rebound in global industrial production. We've seen the beginnings of that already. And I think that dynamic is going to be very important. It's going to be very important for bonds, which are likely to sell off in those circumstances because they tend to trade on a coincident basis. And it potentially will provide confirmation uh, of, the, uh, of the tendency of growth assets to rebound. Uh, that being the case, uh, then I think that you're likely to see, you, we may well see a period of consolidation at the moment. There may be uh, a setback. Uh, but I think the likelihood of retesting the lows in those circumstances are pretty small. Um, and famous last words, of course. The, and the other development is the sense that um, political policy is changing. So we've been in an environment whereby it's been the focus has been on the pandemic, and you know we've been keeping the score of uh, the rather ghoulish score of how many people basically are dying from COVID in different. Uh, parts of the world. Uh, And increasingly, politicians are now sensing uh, that uh, having been locked down for the last few weeks, that uh, a lot of people who basically have no income um, are beginning to uh, become much more vocal about the unsatisfactory nature of the situation. So the political calculus is shifting, whereby basically 
politicians were likely to extend the lockdowns because they felt that the score, you know, they couldn't be responsible if there was a renewed outbreak of COVID. Uh, now, basically, they're much more focused on the economic damage that results from long lockdowns. And so I think that the, uh, the, the whole un, uh, unlocking of the lockdowns uh, is likely to be more rapid than the consensus expects. And I think that's extremely significant. Yes, I see what you're saying, but on the discontent that is uh, currently being splashed all over television screens on, on business channels, I look at that and I think it's a few hundred people in camouflage gear with guns in Michigan, for example. It's not tens of thousands of people. It's hundreds of people. And I think the responsible members of the population are saying, no, it's a little bit too early to open up yet. That's my first point, so you can comment on that. The second point is, where do you see these sharp the signs of a recovery in industrial production. That's the second one, because, I mean, I've just seen Japanese data showing exports down 11.7%. I've seen some horrible uh, estimates for GDP in various jurisdictions. So are you seeing tangible evidence, actual data that shows industrial production about to recover? Well, I think that the reality of it is, is the data lags. And so, therefore, you won't actually see uh, it in the data for a while, okay? You can see it in China, obviously, and I mentioned that. So you've seen a V-shaped, an aggressive V-shaped recovery in industrial production in China. Uh, and I think that China, um, you know, again, it's, you know, we, we, in the past, we've tended to actually dismiss Japan as being a special case and not, you know, nowhere else is comparable. Uh, and actually, that's been nonsense. Uh, and I think in this instance is, I think China's experience, okay, it's an autocratically run uh, country, they can do things that we can't do in the West, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but the sort of pattern has been very similar. Uh, and it's likely that um, the, the pattern in terms of industrial production is going to be pretty similar too, albeit with, with, with a lag. So I think that you're going to you, you you're going through that inflection point, you know, probably around about now, uh, and markets will pick this up. They're probably already picking this up uh, well before basically the sort of confirmatory data sort of comes through, which mm. we will see in sort of a month or so's time. So I think that we're going to be looking back and, and basically it's going to be sort of, you know, this point in April, which is going to be the sort of uh, the, the low point of industrial production. And of course, basically industrial production, you know, plunged to an extremely low level. Uh, and so therefore, the likelihood of it rebounding strongly from a statistical perspective is extremely high. And that's exactly what happened uh, in, you know, in the global financial crisis. OK, it's my job to play devil's advocate here. And I'll do so if, if you'll allow me, uh, Philip. I've always thought that there may be instead of a U or a V or an L, there'll be a W. In other words, we'll test the lows and you'll get that double bottom formation on the graphs, fundamentally based, of course. And the reasons for that, in my tiny mind, are as follows. You'll get a second wave of selling because of the economic data that you think is showing signs of recovery, but I think will still shock people when it, when it comes out. In other words, the stuff that we've already endured will come out in data and people will say, goodness me, that's absolutely horrible. GDP, PMI, unemployment, etc. And also, I, I genuinely believe that certain businesses will not come straight back 
into opening their doors and doing business as they used to do. So the recovery won't be as dramatic as, say, for example, Chinese industrial production. I think in the West there will be problems with bars and restaurants and airlines, etc., getting back to normal. So that will be the first point that means we get more selling. The second one might be because we open up a little bit too early, then there could be a second wave of in, in infections, which means a second wave of, of selling. And also we'll come to oil in a moment, but those are my two points for the W formation. Yes. Well, I think with the greatest respect, I think that, well, number one, markets tend to be forward looking. And so unless there is enduring serious weakness, i.e. you see no bounce, then I think markets are going to look through uh, this um, because, if you like, governments in terms of the sort of, you know, the fiscal response and the monetary response has sort of has dealt with some of the um, some of the tail risks. Um, and so, therefore, I think that, um, you know, the market's likely to be sort of patient. Um, uh, in terms of, I don't doubt uh, that uh, there are going to be certain businesses that go out of business um, and that there are certain sectors that are going to be much slower to come online. Uh, and uh, clearly, Western economies are much more service-based. Uh, and, and so, therefore, uh, they're not as comparable to, uh, to the Chinese experience. Um, but notwithstanding that, uh, I think that, uh, um, you know, historically, there tends to be a pretty close association uh, between risk appetite and the ebb and flow of activity in the sort of manufacturing sector. Uh, and I don't think that this time is different from that respect. In terms of, um, you know, and I think that, you, you know, you're likely to see uh, obviously, a dramatic rebound in, in the industrial production on a global basis. You're likely to see a, um, a, a, probably a correction after that initial surge in the final quarter of this year. So it's not going to be a sort of straight line experience. Uh, but I think uh, it, it's not going to be, uh, well, that would make it a very wonky W. Um, and, um, mm. you know, and, and so uh, that, that that may well happen. It may well be that you that will be associated with a sort of further market setback. Uh, but I think that's an issue for later on in the year. Uh, I really do uh, to test whether basically uh, the recovery basically has adequate legs and so forth, or whether basically it's a very anemic, uh, uh, ultimately an anemic affair after this sort of dynamic turnaround in industrial production. I always know that I'm going to get shot down when someone says, with the greatest respect, before they shoot me down. Philip, what about the oil price? The oil price yesterday, that was a moment in time. That was a technical futures situation. And people can't deliver into Cushing in Oklahoma in the United States. So it went to minus 40 at one stage. But I noticed today as we pre-record this that the oil price is down another 20%. And this is the real market now. This is Brent crude oil, which is threatening to go below $20 a barrel. Does that not tell you that maybe, as you quite rightly say, markets are forward-looking? then these markets are looking forward to a horrible, horrible economy, even worse than we've just endured over the last, say, two months. So your argument about markets being forward-looking is borne out on my screen at the moment with crude oil. Yes, but I think that the oil market at the moment is extremely dislocated, in the same way that actually you know, mainstream markets were dislocated in March. Uh, I think you've seen continuing dislocation, which has been getting worse in the oil market. So I'm not sure what it's actually signalling and whether we can trust what it's signalling, simply because there there is this sort of big technical sort of component there. Uh, And there's massive short-term oversupply, you know, which is weighing on things. uh, And the futures role, basically, that tends to be a sort of, uh, you know, 
a, tends to be a tough period in this this kind of market environment. So, um, so, so if I was a bear, I'd be making the argument that weak oil prices basically are telling us that uh, you know all is not well, and it's a non-confirmatory signal for you know this rally that we've seen in uh, in, in equity markets. Um, However, if that was the case, you'd expect um, industrial metals prices to be similarly weak, yes, yes. Uh, or at least basically be weak. And actually, they've held up pretty well. They're well above levels we saw back in, say, 2016, when we had that, uh, um, you know, again, the sort of the sort of economic weakness uh, then. So, so, so I think that, and, and that market is. Um, is is not in technical disarray, if that makes sense. Uh, so, so I think that, uh, that that to take a cue from oil at the moment, uh, I think is probably pro- probably incorrect, simply because it's uh, the oil prices at the moment are heavily distorted. Okay, let's have a look at asset classes now. I want to look at um, three, if possible, equities, bonds, and also gold. Which, and I know you've been a great supporter of gold uh, over the years that we've been speaking, Philip, and you've been absolutely yep. right. It, ha- it has a couple of um, uh, stutters here and there, but it is uh, doing well at around about $1,700 an ounce. We'll talk about that later, but let's look at the two big ones, equities and bonds. And also, if I could ask you to look at the difference between developed markets and emerging markets in both of those sure. first two asset classes. Sure. So in terms of equity markets, obviously the concern is that this move has been very narrow. You know, it's been very dominated by, you know, particularly the sort of the tech titans in the US. And, uh, and, and that, you know, ultimately we need better market breadth to sound the all clear. Yes. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we think that under our central case, there is a reasonable chance of expecting that beginning to come through uh, uh, after possibly a period of consolidation. Um, and uh, and we basically have continued to focus on on you know adding to um, um, adding to quality equity exposure. I we've been able to actually sort of add to our exposure to companies that we think basically are resilient, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We haven't been yet prepared to actually take more cyclical risk in our portfolios. Um, but we have also been buying um, consumer-facing Asian uh, equities. Uh, and again, this is a strategic area that we like on a long-term basis. Uh, and they're supported, but we believe they will continue to be supported by strong tailwinds as the middle class sort of emerges across Northern Asia in particular. And we think that's one of the sort of key structural growth themes that it's possible to hang one's hat on. And it's not a function of share buybacks or financial engineering and so forth. It's basically sort of, you know, it's real growth, if you like. So we like that area. And we think that you know, treating emerging markets um, as a single asset class is doesn't make sense, you know, because there's actually there's Asia and the rest. And in equity indices, Asia accounts for what um, probably 75% of a typical emerging market equity index. Uh, and so, and then there's the rest. Uh, and we think Asia is in pretty good shape. Uh, it's coped with COVID pretty well. They've got fiscal depth and so on and so forth. Uh, whereas ex-Asia, basically, it's much more problematic. You know, it's it's uh, uh, that there is a patchiness. Obviously, bond emerging market bond indices are more heavily weighted to uh, away from Asia, uh, and so therefore you're getting more of that sort of uh, uh, um, sort of conventional emerging market sort of risk. Um, if you look at emerging market investment grade bonds. Um, investment grade bonds in the U.S. have rallied very sharply, uh, and we 
added aggressively to that area in March and um, and have done very well out of that. Uh, but emerging market investment grade bonds basically have rallied a bit, but nothing like as much. So this is all about breadth. You know, for this recovery to actually have proper legs, we've got to see better breadth. And it's not just breadth within, say, developed equity markets. It's about uh, better regional breadth as well. Bonds. And then on to gold, if you would. The bond market is fascinating to me. The Fed has stepped in. And in fact, in your conclusions, you say the Fed has successfully addressed the problem of a local US and international liquidity shock, which obviously had, has a profound impact on the bond market. Where to from here for the bond market? Well, I think that in terms of the Treasury market, um, putting credit to one side, looking at the Treasury market, which mm. is obviously sort of critical here, um, that tends to so 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 you know ten year U.S. Treasuries really yields haven't backed up much at all. So again, it's a non-confirmatory. If you if you're a bearish persuasion, uh, the fact that uh, long term interest rates in the states haven't sort of reversed their plunge uh, is is a concerning thing. Um, and um, you know and because if things were getting better, why aren't you know why isn't the yield curve steepening at the moment? Um, and I think that's primarily because the bond market tends to trade on, off on a coincident basis with data, and data has continued to plunge, um, and so therefore that's sort of remained pretty supportive. I think if we're right about the inflection point coming soon, uh, then uh, the bond market, the U.S. Treasury market, is going to be sensitive to that and will respond before we actually get the data. So it's something we're looking at very closely at the moment. If our central thesis is right, uh, then we would expect the yield curve in the U.S. to start steepening a bit. However, short-term interest rates in the States are going to be locked down for a long period of time, and we're going to generally have to live with financial repression, uh, which means that uh, um, we'll exert, we'll we'll prevent uh, bond yields uh, going back to levels that might be appetizing to longer-term investors. The final point that you make in your conclusions are the following. The, The main risk to the above scenario is that extended lockdowns start to do more permanent damage to both supply and demand internationally, leading to tighter credit conditions and a deeper earnings recession. But given the signs from Spain and Italy and in certain states of the United States of America, and maybe even in a couple of weeks' time in certain African countries, notably South Africa and also the United Kingdom, maybe that that last point is just in, in the back of your mind rather than the front of your mind. You think that everything's going to be fine. Not fine, but better than was expected two or three weeks ago. Yes, and I think that um, you know often it's the direction of travel that's important. So if the direction of travel is basically more constructive than you know what has previously been discounted, uh, then that should basically be a supportive factor. So we continually look for um, for, for for the right kind of data to support our sort of you know the probabilities that we attach to the different scenarios that we look at. Um, but uh, uh, And one of the things that I mentioned earlier on, which is this potential inflection point in, in political policy, yes, relating to the sort of shift to be more concerned about uh, economic damage uh, than, uh, than ex- an excess number of deaths, then that is very significant because it means that basically that uh, this – this rolling recession, you know, gets nipped in the bud 
which I think is incredibly important, particularly for our central thesis, which is that uh, you know this has been a shock, not a typical recession. Uh, we've seen economic activity plunge, albeit on a short-term basis, uh, and but the lockdown period hasn't allowed hasn't been allowed to drag on, which means that people are more no, more naturally likely to sort of uh, if you if you like sort of go back to normal. Uh, quicker than would otherwise be the case. If the whole thing lingers on, uh, then then I think the the economic damage is going to be severe, and that basically means that uh, the rally that we've seen in equity markets potentially gets short circuited. Very very final question. I promise you, this is the last one. You're the co-head of multi asset growth at ninety one in London. Have you changed your asset allocation meaningfully over the last couple of months? Yes, we added significantly to particularly equities, quality equities and Asian consumer-facing equities, as I mentioned earlier on, in the second half of March, simply because we felt the value was, you know, absolutely compelling at that particular point in time. And it's, you know, better to basically, you know, if the medium to longer term prospective returns are attractive, then we're prepared to actually look through short-term volatility in order to actually sort of if you like, sort of own those own those assets. We also uh, established a new position in investment grade bonds. You know, which were where the principal ETF was trading at a seven percent discount to NAV, which we thought was uh, extraordinary. Uh, spreads were at extraordinary levels, and um, and we we allocated fifteen percent of the fund to to, to investment grade. Um, and obviously, spreads have come in quite significantly since then. In the very recent past, we've actually knocked back our equity exposure. We've taken some profits. Um, you know, the S&P basically sort of got back to levels of which uh, you know, we think are important from a sort of technical perspective. And obviously, valuations have shifted significantly. And so, therefore, we've, we've subsequently moderated our exposure somewhat. But we're still in a position where we're somewhat overweight growth assets at the moment. And we basically want to see a little bit more evidence of the sort of key elements of our, th- our primary thesis uh, come, into, come into play. And we want to basically see whether the market actually sort of uh, consolidates uh, uh, around about these kind of levels and whether that's a consolidation in time or whether it's basically uh, a more meaningful retracement. Philip, I look forward to our next chat to review what we've just said. Philip Saunders is the co-head of Multi-Asset Growth at 91, based in London.